What's up, guys? This is Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Make sure to check out the latest addition to the Ringer lineup, Music Exists. Each week, Chris Ryan and Chuck Klosterman ask and answer questions about their love of music while exploring the role of concerts, locations, fandom, criticism, genre, lyrics, and much, much more. You can listen to new episodes of Music Exists and follow along every week for free on Spotify. Sports have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in my house, it's Andy Greenwald! Well, desperate times call for desperate measures. This This, is a choice by us. This is The Watch Extreme Home Edition. Yeah. Uh, We are recording this in my home today. Obviously, like much of the country or many people in the country, I am WFH today. Yeah. Uh, Andy is WFH every day. No, I'm WTF <laughs> right now. But, uh, you know, there's there's still um, tons of TV to talk about, even though we are living in some pretty crazy times, obviously. Yeah, I, uh, I finished a book the other day and I reached for the, the next, like I have a little pile, yeah. a stack on my night table, some stuff that I picked up and I wanted to read. And it was uh, Station Eleven, <laughs> which I believe... Is uh-huh. about a worldwide viral pandemic. Mm-hmm. I put it back down. Do you find yourself so you don't want to be? Because we did the contagion rewatchables last week, which is so wild to me. And I didn't, you know, when I when I, mean, I look, I mean that movie is incredible. But when I started watching it, I was like, oh, this is really not what I want to be watching. Chris, right now. I think the people who listen to this podcast regularly know the baseline with me. I mean, they think of me as a pretty risk-taking guy. I mean, I, I rode a horse recently. Yeah, that's true. Within the last three to nine months, I was atop a horse. Yeah. So I'm willing to take measured risks. I would not watch that movie again yeah. if you paid me $10,000. But do you, so when times, I mean, obviously there's not a lot of times like these, but when when you f- confront like real world circumstances, yeah. do you look for culture and art that is about that real world, is about that kind of situation, or do you want to escape? Do you want to go the other way? I struggle with the real world full time. You know, I know. I so know. I, am, I, I am absolutely a million percent the other way. And honestly, as I was heading over here, and, uh, you know, and we don't want to make light of anything. This is an extremely serious situation. Yeah. And, and, and you know, our thoughts are with everyone in the world, literally. Yes. Going through this together. And hopefully that solidarity can translate into some effective action on part on you know, on the part of all societies on this planet. But as I was driving that's over here... That's your political platform. That's my platform. Okay. <laughs> my platform is Purell 2020. Yeah. Let's just get this shit clean. Um, I, uh, I was like, well, the only silver lining is, you know, I could really potentially have a couple hours over the next few days to catch up on Curb Your Enthusiasm's resurgent 10th season. Sure. I can wait. You guys haven't watched the ham app yet? No. It's I, I just want to thank whoever that was on Twitter that flagged the episode the minute it went up <laughs> yeah. as a boon to my household. I really appreciated that. So no, I don't want to know anything about fiction at this. I mean, anything about uh, the reality at this moment. I want fiction to take me away from it. You're the opposite. You watch that movie and you um, just continued on. Yeah, I, I don't think it's... What's strange for me is... I'll tell you, you know, like I, I just read, read this book, this novel by Dennis Johnson called The Stars at Noon. And I think I came across that. I'm a huge Dennis Johnson fan. He obviously wrote Jesus' Son. Uh, Tree of Smoke is one of my favorite novels. But I you know, randomly came across an article on Deadline a couple of weeks ago that Stars at Noon was going to be Claire Denis' next film. Cool. It was going to star Robert Pattinson and Margaret Qualley. And I was like, yeah, I've never read, read Stars at Noon. I'll, I'll check that out. And it's um, set in 1984 in Nicaragua. It's about an American woman who's down there who is kind of a quasi-journalist, slumming it kind of around um, Managua. And she meets a guy who may or may not be a British oil executive. And there are spies. And it's this fever pitch, fever dream of a novel. And I was reading it and... You know, in, on one hand, it is escapism. It is escapism to read something set in 1984 in general, and it has a kind of like almost, um, you know, a, a, almost like a romantic feel to it, even though it's like a very much apocalyptic, you know, end of the world type of story. But I found myself only thinking about what had happened since 1984, 
when I was good, reading good it. and bad. Yeah, but like I think that it's it's almost impossible. It's been impossible for me since 2016 to really see things in vacuums. Oh, no matter totally how, how hard I try. And so even if it was just about I just want to talk or I just want to you know rewatch episodes of Modern Family or I just want to watch mm-hmm. Ugly Delicious or I just want to watch you know Top Gear or something like that. You almost can't quite 90 you you can't 100% shut out the real world. No, and nor should you. I mean, I do think that it, it's worth noting that saying I'm going to escape into Larry David's neuroses for two to eight hours is quite a privilege. Sure. As is feeling like there are times in the world of relative peace and prosperity because it's relative. Yeah. So I agree with that. And I also think in that sense, historical fiction can be helpful because it reminds you that it's always in flux, that what felt like the end of the world in 1984, 1918, a year that just popped into my mind, uh, (laughs) any year throughout history is legitimately felt and experienced that way. And so maybe, you know, there's some helpful perspective that you can put onto it and be like, boy, they felt like that was a big deal in 1984. Well, buckle up. Do you think 1984 would have been cooler with Twitter? Oh my God. I mean, I mean, I do think not, not, not to, not to, you know, well, okay, I'll just do it. I mean, I just, is there anything Twitter makes better? <laughs> is there anything it makes better? I mean, I do think that we hopefully can all unite. I don't think it idea. makes, I don't think right now it's helping. I think it's making things a lot worse. Sure. Um, so one of the weird things about, you know, NCAA tournaments canceled, MLB yeah. season postponed, NBA season indefinitely postponed, Disney parks closed, gatherings over Major 250, 500 people, fast mo- the fast movie bumped a year. The thing that's still ticking is TV. Weirdly. Yeah. I, and, and, and I guess the question is, do you then continue to talk about television in the same way? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I also think that for whatever it's worth and for however I present, and I'm sure people you know, who struggle picturing me on horseback are also chuckling to themselves at the thought that I was putting Larry David's neuroses as somehow a foreign land sure. to me. Um, I do think we're going to be fine. I do think that there are lessons to be learned from this. And I generally have optimism about the fate of the world. <laughs> I do. And so, you know, I think it's worth continuing talking about things that matter to sure. us. And, um, you know, if, if, if the worst thing that happens over these next few weeks for some people, some fortunate people, is that they can't go out, miss some events, and catch up on good television or other streaming entertainment, like that's pretty much okay. And it is a boon that the, our, our ancestors, the pandemic of 1918 didn't have. Yeah. That we are connected still, that we are not, even if we're socially distancing, that we can... Text message, yeah. Listen to podcasts, perhaps. Sure. Catch up on critically acclaimed crime thrillers on the USA Network. All those hour-long prestige dramas that you had no time to watch. I mean, especially ones that recently aired their fifth episode. I mean, halfway through the season, it's a perfect morsel. <sighs> it is Thursday, so it is Briar Patch Thursdays. We We're going to be it. talking to Richard Bloom, who is the... He's our brilliant production designer uh, about this week's episode that I hope people checked out. You can obviously check it out streaming. The, the ease with which I just slid from existential neuroses into marketing yeah. is, you know, I'm, I'm a little offended, <laughs> but, you know, we're out here hustling. Um, uh, so I hope people do check it out and, and listen to the conversation because yeah. for whatever it's worth, Richard is a, a, a wonderful person, an incredibly talented guy. And the production designer is one of those jobs, kind of like, like the director of photography, mm-hmm. that I think people recognize the title in the credits, but I think a lot of casual... TV fans don't necessarily know the scope of that job and the responsibilities of that job and how crucial that job is for everything you see on the screen. And, and in some cases, the story as well. The coolest thing that's happened so far talking to all these folks who've been working on Briar Patch is getting a better understanding of how filmmaking works outside of the director's chair. So essentially, finding these people or talking to these people who have been working on this show from... Uh, pretty much prior to Lily being brought on in some cases, and then through with all these different directors Mm -hmm. having to maintain this consistency of look, consistency of feel to the show. So it's really an interesting case study in in like, oh, this is how like stories get told on screen. There is a large piece of this, and and, and this is, you know, not just obviously my experience, but I think for anyone who makes TV, any showrunner, any creator, any writer, anybody 
who's working in this field, there's a large part of this that truly is making a wish on a coin and tossing it into a fountain or a well and hoping it comes out and comes true. Yeah. And for as much as writing the pilot script that I wrote was a bet and a hope, you know, that we'd find the right actors, that we'd find the right directors, piece by piece, those those things got done. But the one thing that no one ever really questioned was, oh, will we find this town? Sure. Will we find this fictional place? They're like, well, we'll have to. And, you know, that was Richard's job. Richard went to Albuquerque. He worked on the pilot as art director, became production designer, and then went to Albuquerque before almost anyone else and went to work finding it, you know? And, and that's, I don't know, I just think it's cool. I mean, it, it's it's not a job I could ever do visually, but I think it's such an exciting part of TV and filmmaking. Yeah, so we have that conversation with Richard coming next. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Saul this week? Do you want to yeah. talk a little bit? More? Yeah. Well, let's, so we have a new episode of Saul. Yeah, Namaste. It's called that fourth episode. For what it's worth, I prefer talking about Saul with cameras. Okay. Um, I prefer actually talking about Saul after wrestling on Monday nights. That <laughs> is a well-landed <laughs> blow. Um, a suplex, if you will, mm-hmm. which I believe is a wrestling move. Not entirely sure. One of my favorite things, like a little, little BTS for, for watch heads, uh-huh. that when the video team has now been coming into our little uh, studio to record us, often the devoted members of the team have to move between the two cameras. Yes. Both to like maybe adjust the one on you and then to smear Vaseline on the lens of the one well, on me. I'm, I'm a mover. So I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm all, uh, you need to be kind of handheld with me because I'll move forward. I'll move back. I like to kick, you know, like I like lean all the way back. That is true. And ever since we got the Joe Rogan mics in that studio, you do it. I move a lot. You need the Paul Greengrass experience. <laughs> um, but my favorite thing was the other week we were we were talking about Saul and we were getting very impassioned and I forget who it was, but he stepped into a trash can like it was a Mr. Bean. Oh bit yeah, Ron, Ron stepped into a trash can. As he was going between the cameras. Anyway, so let's let's build up to Saul. Um I feel like it's an easier segue since we were talking about like comfort food TV, just yeah. briefly to talk about Ugly Delicious episode one. You know, you brought this up the other day. Yeah. And I thought so obviously. Dave Chang has a relationship with The Ringer. He does his podcast on The Ringer Podcast Network. He's sometimes seen around our offices. Mm-hmm. So I'm like familiar with Dave. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I know him, mm-hmm. but I don't like know him like that. So I say that to say, take my word for it when I say how floored I was by the first episode right? of Ugly Delicious. Yeah, you weren't sure what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's also just kind of like one of those things where I know about him as like the celebrity chef aspect and as as like an incredible uh, thinker and pundit on on food and culture. I thought his appearance on Bill's pod the other day was really great Mm -hmm. where they talked a lot about what's coming next in the the food industry and his talking about delivery services, especially was really eye opening. Um, But yeah, you were, you were kind of like this new season of ugly delicious. And I was like, Oh, cool. Like I will, I love, I love good food TV. I'll, I'll tune in. And it's just like a, a real like mallet to the, to the feelings box. Right out of the gate on this. The first episode, Kids Menu, is one of the best hours of food TV ever made. It is one of the most emotional things I've ever seen yeah. on TV, yeah. or certainly in the last few years. I'm really floored by it, too. And just big picture for a second. And again, like I, I joke about how much I love his podcast. I do love it. I was really honored to be on it. That was the longest conversation he and I have ever had. Mm-hmm. But I've been a fan of him for a long time. And oh, he food. canceled the shit out of me because of my eggs hottest take, by the way. That was another thing that happened. That is true. Yeah. That so, is true. But so listen, I'm definitely coming from a very unbiased position. For what it's worth, everything is canceled now. So you were just, you can, you can let that slide right off you. Um, what's truly been amazing to me is to watch his metamorphosis. And I know that he would struggle with this comparison, but to think about him in relation to Tony Bourdain, who was a friend and a mentor to him, is worth doing. And I think it, I think for a number of reasons. One, because the way that Dave clearly is, the way he operates, his competitiveness, his perfectionism. We know, and I think he said it, that when Tony passed, like Dave felt pressure to fill that gap somehow, mm-hmm. whatever that gap even was, as a cultural ambassador, as a explainer, you know, as a as a helper. Yeah. Basically. As a mentor to other as restaurateurs, men- writers, yes, to food culture thinkers, yeah. in general. He took that very seriously. Um, even if I'm sure his own modesty would not allow him to hear it, I think he's done an incredible job. And part of that is because 
for all their differences, both of these figures matured in the public eye. Mm -hmm. You know, and obviously Tony's journey from like bad boy of the kitchen in the late nineties into the sort of the beautiful ambassador that he became was a much was a longer story, maybe had more extreme edges to it. Mm -hmm. But I think that that Dave Dave's journey to what he's doing now, which is being so open, wildly open, frankly, in a way that I think is quite moving and meaningful to people with mental health struggles in any industry, but yeah. also just people who are adults. So to see a professional person, I mean, in any field, to be like, how does becoming a parent change you creatively, financially, professionally, as he does in this first hour, was really staggering, yeah. you know, and really, and really special. And they're the little things in this episode that I just can't get over. Like, also, again, his wife's grace's honesty and willingness to participate in this is sure. something that's incredible. Sure. His mother and his family's willingness to be a part of it. But like when Grace goes to the sushi bar to talk about what you are and you aren't allowed to eat as a pregnant woman. And again, just Dave, he doesn't, there's no one, he's the, it's his show. So if he had said, I want to be in that interview too, people would understand. But again, where he is in his life to be like, I shouldn't be there for that. Yeah. It's these little things. And and the season as a whole, you know, it's just, it's a new kind of food TV where he's just really, all right, this is my, the end of my monologue, I promise. But for however many years on Food Network, every chef, whether they were ones who I really admired or ones who I thought were a little bit whatever, they all say in various ways of saying it that the secret ingredient is love. I know, yeah. And that's some bullshit. Yeah. Except when it's not. Because truly, especially in this era of you know instant gratification and instant downloads and remote teleconferencing or whatever we're doing right now, food really is probably the most direct way to get what's inside of your heart, memory, and collective soul to someone else. Yeah, I mean, I and, think, I, not to repudiate that, but I would, uh, yeah, I know that, that when Sandra Lee or whatever stands over, like, her her stuff, she's like, it's all about love. And I, I've heard, like you, chefs that I I really adore say the same thing, but what Dave does is the same thing that Bourdain did do, which is they look at food as a language. And yeah. they look at all of these things that mean so much to people like writing and like film and food and music as these connective things that break, that tie us together. You know, in a world where we're increasingly, those, those ties are getting frayed, the way you communicate mm -hmm. with your mother through food, the mm -hmm. way you communicate with your unborn child by showing Nick Kroll how you're going to make mashed up yams mm -hmm. is a language. It's a language that you don't know how to speak yet. And mm -hmm. I, I just thought it was like such a moving first episode of the season to, sh to show it in all these different ways and also still be a really fleet-footed, entertaining, yeah. uh, multi-layered episode of television. Fun, a lot of celebrities and cooks and people, you know, whether it's Eduardo Jordan, who's not famous, but is this great chef in Seattle, or Tom Colicchio, who is very famous, yeah. or Nick Kroll, a lot of fun faces show up. But but I, I think to that point, it is a language. It's also something that Chang and Bourdain had in common. It's also a trade. It's a craft. It's yeah. hard. It's repetition. It's work. It's business. It's all of that. But there are still new ways to do this. And I feel like they found, he and uh, Dave and Morgan Neville, who is his uh, collaborator on the show and a documentarian, I think they found a new way to do this. Mm -hmm. It feels very familiar, but it feels very fresh and very of the moment. And it also feels full of possibilities. I think there are four episodes in this season, but the show can now clearly be anything. Sure. It is not tied to anything. It's just limited by the amount of cuisines in the world, which is unlimited. And it's tied to wherever his personal muse is taking him at any given point. I just, I always find it thrilling and I love watching it. And I bet I'm not alone that those four hours will be of comfort over the next few days sure. and weeks. Yeah. You want to talk about Saul? Let's talk about Saul. Um, another really good episode. Uh, I thought three was astonishing. Yes. So I think that there was nothing, there was absolutely nothing wrong with four. It was just, I, I felt like it was obviously setting up a couple of more things. The thing I think it was setting up was this idea that Saul has now kind of separated from the host and is now not Jimmy anymore. Mm -hmm. And that conversation with Howard at at lunch that um, that Saul has uh, with with Ho Howard, it was a great scene, great scene. But is obviously very tied up in what should I call you? You know, who is Saul? Who is I mean, Saul? It, what does he stand for? And then the, the episode ends with Kim kind of saying, "I need, I need, I need." Well, it, it rounds in towards the end 
with with Kim sort of saying, I need Saul Goodman on this. That on moment this case. is like the moment in one of the Joss Whedon Avengers movies that I don't remember when. There's only two. When <laughs> that's, that's helping me, but not enough. Not as much as you may think. Isn't it in, in one of those movies where uh, Scarlet, uh, not Scarlet Witch, where uh, Black Widow is like to, to Bruce Banner, like, oh, I he's need, like, be the Hulk. I need yeah, the yeah. big green guy. Yeah, yeah. I need him now. It, I mean, that was that moment. Um, obviously, you and I always rhapsodize about what sets the show apart and, and, and the writing and the way it's structured. And this is definitely one of those episodes that is probably best appreciated on a binge because this isn't episode three sure. this isn't you know and i see that there's this, uh, there's one coming up called Bagman that's directed by vince gilligan that i just like have my eye on i feel like that we should circle that one yeah they're gonna be big ones yeah come on back over for that one this is a connect <laughs> thanks is the invitation still on um this is was a connective tissue one mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that but it also allows you to kind of sit back and appreciate certain things that they do and, and the, the more obvious example would be so an episode where jimmy or now Saul acts out his aggression and his resentment in a very kind of petty or childish the way by throwing bowling balls at Howard's car. Right. Okay. The episode could have ended with that. We would have understood it. You know, we also saw last week that he's pretty into throwing stuff again, or again, for the first time. Sure. But because this is Better Call Saul, the cold open is him walking through the pawn shop, weighing stuff, thinking about it, trying stuff out, because it's always cause and effect on these shows, right? Right. I was thinking of that when I was thinking about that great lunch scene with Howard and Patrick Fabian. It's such an odd, interesting performer. It's just I really also like, like the, tr- the, the way show. they've like the way they even shoot that guy waist up in suits, where like everything is super broad and the yeah. tie, and the tie clip underneath. Yeah, it, exactly. It, it's just lifted. like everything is like wide and like indulgent. Yeah, because he can take the way he takes up space. But in that moment, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where the show just effortlessly earns stuff that could feel like shoe leather in any other show. And what I mean by that is in every show that you're building or writing in a writer's room, like the scene where one character asks another, tell me about who you are. I mean, you would almost have to hide it, right? You have to bury it or, or obscure it or break it up among five or six characters or put it into metaphor. But because they, they always plan in a very meticulous way, they earned a scene where one character sits across from the main character and literally says, tell me who you are. Yeah. What does that mean? Right. And it in no way feels handholdy or overly Basil Exposition-y, right? It's just that's where these people are in their journey with each other and with a larger world. And I, it's it's worth not blowing past that moment. It's awesome. No, not at all. Do you have any... No, you think, no Lalo this episode, though, so no, got to ding it a few So points. do you think that Mike's in, in Mexico? Seems like it. Yeah. I mean, you would know Greater Albuquerque better than I do. Is that is there that a, a location? I can promise you they filmed that in Greater <laughs> Albuquerque due to because I, I can speak to tax credits and things like that. Sure. Um, Did you see Stranger Things is going to shoot in Albuquerque? Dude, Tamalywood is happening. Yeah, it's a real thing. Brian Garrity, who's so good on Briar Patch, just uh, he's he's been texting me. He's back there shooting already. Oh, really? And he's just texting me like short videos of like approaching Did Albuquerque he, is studios. It, is that where they shoot Chicago Fire, <laughs> Chicago <Yes>. PD, <laughs> Chicago Med? It's easier. Yeah. It's easier now. Tax credits. That's it's the spot, man. That's where everybody's going. They don't call me Dick Wolf because I pay taxes. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, okay. I mean, like, I don't have a ton to say more to do, say about that. Better call song. I'm trying to think if there was any other do, elements. I, I also along the same lines of the opening se- sequence when. Jimmy is uh when Jim, Jimmy is shopping. I I I thought that the the Gus cleaning the fryer scene That's great. I was always like, don't kill Lyle, man. Poor Lyle. Yeah. Come on, Lyle. <laughs> what, what I mean it's just like it, it, the other thing about a scene like that, and this is just a you know, we're just just a couple of guys sitting in one of the guys' house <laughs> while it rains outside. Um you you also feel, I think it's, it's uh, contagious is a bad word these days. I just mean, it's, it's just so evident that the writers, and particularly the writers who are part of, better, of Breaking Bad, and, and maybe actually I'm wrong about that. Maybe it's the writers who weren't also mm-hmm. getting a chance to play, flex, a bit, yeah. flex and play with character traits that defined legendary TV characters. Yeah. So everything that Giancarlo Esposito is doing in that scene, it's just the best version of 
Gus Fring. We just never saw him do it before. And, sure. and, and there's a lot of that in the Hank and Gomi stuff too, which is actually kind of leaning in to the the broader buddy cop stuff that wasn't necessarily, at least in my no, memory. No, it's the best kind of fan service because it's actually letting us see these people in slightly different lights. Yeah, because again, I don't, I've not done a Breaking Bad rewatch and apparently my memory of that show and this show is a little bit um, suspect at this moment. But at least in my memory, their buddy act wasn't as pronounced at the start. It I think they were also finish. subject to the same arc of the show itself, which started out a little bit hammier in places. You know what I mean? And I think that Hank and, and Gomi were a little bit more, not Keystone Cops, but I think that they they really played up the like the banter and stuff like that. In Breaking like Bad, they did? In Breaking Bad, yeah. So I'm I remember. Wrong. No, wait. I was saying the opposite. Saying? I was saying I don't remember, what I don't remember oh, is them how much each other's of balls? I knew they busted each other. I knew that happened. But I guess I don't remember. And maybe it's because the focus just wasn't on them. So they were providing, they are playing a different role. Sure. I think that they're playing, at least straight from jump here, the, like Gus Fring in the Friar scene, the best case versions of yeah. themselves, the one that, there's sort of this composite. Well, it's kind of the cool thing, right? You get to go back. Yeah, it's, it's what happens in sequels too. I know, where, but they're so smart because rather than just be like, let's just have these guys show up and do the old version of them, they're like, what would these guys have been like? Years before they knew Walter was Walter. Yes. They would have looked older, apparently. Yes. Everybody looks older. <laughs> that is an interesting uh, little wrinkle. But that's Albuquerque for you. It's a very, very punishing sun. Okay, we can wrap it up there. We'll take a quick break, and Wait, then we'll be back. Before we take a break, can we just say that though the universe is challenging all of us, it is also giving us, because there was a new killer single today oh, yeah. featuring Lindsay Buckingham. It's pretty good. It's really good. Who produced that? The, so uh, two guys who I'd never heard of but did the whole album but have worked on a bunch of stuff that was pretty cool including um, Casey Musgraves oh. which seems like a smart hookup yeah and uh, I I was reading their credits they seemed like they did a good job and it's also interesting that Brandon Flowers in the press release was basically like I think we all were having a laugh with that last record <laughs> let's get back to business that's good which I appreciate and I also that's also a big Bono We've come to save rock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're back. Yeah. I, I also think that, and again, I don't, I mean, we've had them on the podcast a couple of times and we love those guys and they've been very nice personally. We don't actually know them personally. It's a big, it's a big time for them because Ozark's almost back. <laughs> they love that too? Yeah. Is that what they, we Remember the about? drummer and I were like, oh, Ozark is the shit? Oh, Vanooch. <laughs> yeah. He loved that. Yeah. I'm sorry, because Brandon and I were just locking eyes and talking about Bruce Hornsby. Sure. Um, you kind of get the feeling, at least from the way that, that Brandon talks in this press release for this new record, which is coming out in a couple months, and and about this song and everything. That this, there's no more solo Brandon Flowers. Like basically, like yeah, he this can was just, his, he he he's assimilating it into the Killers brand. This is the solo stuff now, and now they can keep touring arenas, playing these types of songs with you know bigger production and with Lindsey Buckingham guitar solos, which is pretty <laughs> much all I need to get through at least day one of where we currently are. Do so, you like uh, the new Heim song? Do I like the new Heim song? Do you live in Los Angeles in 2020? I love the new Heim song so much. It's really good live. I saw them on Fallon. Yeah. I just love to fire up Fallon at night. Do you follow? Do you fire up Fallon YouTube clips? No, I, I did. Okay, Boomer. I <laughs> okay. Look, let's not turn on each other just yet. No, no, that's going to come in the weeks ahead. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just throwing this at you. I'm pitching it live to you in your own living room. Uh-huh. Um, Rewatchables Jimmy Fallon Tonight Show <laughs> just every episode you and me <laughs> isn't that what Peacock's gonna be yeah um, we if if people were interested we should probably we could probably throw together a little like uh, entertainment survival at home kit sure just like here's a playlist of some songs here's a playlist for streaming services that we've been enjoying what are you gonna watch what are you gonna watch this weekend I mean I didn't finish the Ugly Delicious season mm -hmm. and sweet sweet baby Top Chef all Stars LA is coming for me next and you week. Gotta, you got to catch up on Curb. Very excited to catch up on Curb. Are you going to watch Westworld on Sunday? Uh-huh. Do I have to for this podcast? For this podcast, you have to watch the first one. I do? Yes. Wow. Just one. All right. Um, you know what I want to catch up on? is You're such an AI hater. I, famously. Oh, and Devs is on tonight. New Devs, and we'll talk about that on Monday. Monday. Um, I want to check out Dispatches from Elsewhere. Yeah. Both because... Eva Anderson worked on it, and Andre 3000 is on it, and it filmed in Great City, Philadelphia. Yeah. That's where I'm at. Okay. Um, now I'm we're going to talk to Richard Bloom about episode five of Briar Patch, which people, please go watch it. Are you going to join me on the 000 run? Oh, yes. Yeah, someone posted online that it was just like a pure blast of uncut freeze to the cerebellum. <laughs> yeah. 
Was that you? Nope. That wasn't even my, <laughs> one of my burners. Uh, remind people what where they can watch Zero Zero. That's on Zero. Amazon. It's uh, it comes from I, I think we talked about this a little bit, but it stars Andre Riseborough, Dane DeHaan, Gabriel Byrne. The first few episodes were directed by Stefano Solimo, who directed um, Sicario Day of the Soldado. And then Mauricio Katz yes. is the sort of showrunner overseeing it. A great guy, overseeing it, writer, yeah. showrunner, worked on The Bridge. Nice. Which I'm pleased to say has a great like coaching tree. Yeah, from right, great the coach, pop coaching tree. Coach Elwood Reed. Yeah. A lot of people came out of that show. Okay, so we have a ton of stuff to watch. Yeah, and we have plenty of time to do it. Everybody, in all seriousness, we love you guys. Stay home, socially distance yourselves, stay safe, look after each other. Yeah, and we'll be back on Monday. Sounds good. It's Briar Patch Thursdays. We're going. Let's do it. We're already going. Greenwell, I love this shirt on you. This is not part of the podcast. Maybe it is. Thanks, man. This is like, what would you call that color? Orange? Mm, No. (laughs) Pumpkin. What would you call it? Actually, Richard, do you know Richard? Old brick. Do you know what Richard taught me? The, the phrase color story. Oh, yeah, so Richard, what is that my is color true. story right now? <laughs> right now, you're, you're looking pretty autumn, actually. But, which, you know, spring is here, so. So, I'm doing it wrong. Fire Patch Thursdays, here we are. Uh, Andy, why don't you introduce our guest? I am so happy to be joined by the absolutely brilliant production designer of Briar Patch season one, Richard Bloom. Oh, I blush. Richard, that's we're great. so happy to see you. Well, it's great to be here. You've it's already great. negged my color story. <laughs> Sorry about that. But that's what I look to you for. Richard. And sometimes right. reinforcement. Also, I should say, Richard, who's joining us, worked on the pilot as well. Uh, he's one of the few people who's oh. able to carry over. Richard was the art director on the pilot and was responsible for so much that we love so much, including the Mo Fixins barbecue sign. Yes, and with the talented graphic designer who was L.A.-based, who, who worked on that. But it was great. Yeah, it was great being on the pilot with uh, Brandon Tonner Connolly. Uh, uh, our production designer on the pilot who did a great job and sort of set the tone. Right. And then it was so exciting that we were able to, Richard was able to move with us because he had so many ideas and also had such a head start <laughs> on what we were going to be doing and building. Richard, we've done a couple of these episodes and I keep skipping to like my 13th question first where I'm like, tell me about the themes of this episode. But I think it would help for our listeners to know what you do both like on a day-to-day basis on set, but also like what you do in like a big tent way. This is so, this is why I think these, hopefully people are enjoying listening to these because, you know, as a veteran showrunner, I've always known what a production designer did and how key (laughs) and crucial it was to anything. But for those who don't, because you know, you know me. Well. (laughs) You're also allowed to drag me on this. Okay. Zach Geller already did. So production designer starts uh, about... 10 weeks out on a TV show like this. And, and it was good because I, I hit the ground running in Albuquerque while the writer's room was just going. And I think I was the first creative department had to get there mm-hmm. and um, met up with Dennis Muscari, our location manager. And we I knew the thing about television, having done a couple of seasons as an art director, it's really just like it is, it's a marathon of basically sprinting. Mm-hmm. Like once you get going, you you know it can't stop. So even though you're 10 weeks out, there's like time is of the essence from day one. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, so that's Dennis, something you taught me. Yeah. I, I had no idea. Well, because we knew we knew we had one stage, and we, I wanted to get the set building right away. Um, I was lucky enough to bring an art director from uh, from Los Angeles, Cali Andriatis, and we had our same uh, construction team back from the pilot, so they were familiar with it. And we knew we were going to build the hallway. We knew we were going to build the hotel room. Mm-hmm. So right away, we jumped into those set designs, and. I knew that I wanted to take some liberties with what we shot. On the pilot, we only shot locations. Right. Um, we didn't have the opportunity to build anything. We built we built elements in locations, but we didn't build an actual set on a stage. It's, it's just generally, I don't know if there's other studios do it differently, but we weren't able to. We didn't have stage space. And it was all location. A- Avatar, for instance, may do it differently. Right, yeah. <laughs> Maybe Avatar 4 and 5, but probably the original one, I think, was really just site-specific. And I was actually, when I, when I came on, I thought that we were going to be doing some reshoots. So I was never beholden to the idea of what that hallway mm-hmm. was. Well, we encouraged yeah. a little. I mean, I, yeah, I, and we had, we had meetings about it, like how far away do we want to go? Reshooting parts of the pilot. Right. Well, I think basically, I mean, just starting from the most basic point, like the hallway is crucial to the story and the hallway is certainly crucial to the pilot. We love shooting in the hotel where we, where we shot the pilot. We found the story there. We created the vibe and what it was supposed to feel like. But there were also things that we couldn't change. Like there were glowing yellow tables in the hallway. We didn't love those. And so the question is, when we're building it, obviously you're building it for efficiency and you're building it wider so cameras can move around your wilding walls. That's a term I learned from Richard. Uh, So you can remove things and put cameras Uh, through them, et cetera. 
But are you going to build exactly what you've already established, or are you going to take the opportunity to have it be slightly different and hope that audiences are willing to? And one reason that I really wanted to change it up a little bit is because I knew we weren't going to be going down to that lobby very often because it was very expensive to shoot in that hotel. I knew we were going back for episode two and three of the block that Steven shot, and we might get to go there towards the end of the season. But what we wanted to do is every Reader, time we, we didn't. The, <laughs> we, every time we went went back into the hallway, I wanted to evoke the sense of that lobby. So yes. That, because that's really like the heart of the old old part of San Bonifacio. Mm-hmm. I used to say ban- San Bonifacio. And, you said Ficio, too. Uh, yeah, I said it all differently. One fun thing that convinced me I had yeah. made up the right name for the town was that no one could say it. <laughs> right. It was just like, just, just killing it. But so, and, and I knew I wanted to, because it is sort of a surreal moment for uh, Allegra in that hallway, I wanted to, like, make it taller and skinnier and have the doors, you know, I wanted to feel more surreal for her because, you know, there's a tiger in it. Sure. And so um, so we planned that. But So right out of the gate, 10 weeks out, I know I'm jumping into those set designs, but it's a little terrifying because I didn't have, I don't think we'd picked, I don't think you had picked a single director yet when I had started, or maybe you no, had. We had, we, had, we had been interviewing directors, but, but I we certainly didn't know who was going to be doing what. Talk to anyone. So yeah. I'm making these choices now on behalf of like a whole season, not knowing how people are going to shoot it. So we're trying to protect ourselves from like, well, okay, if they want to do a tracking shot down the hallway with all the ceilings out. So we're trying to wild everything, which means you can easily remove it. And we're also jumping into um, picking locations. And having done some television, I knew we weren't going to start an AD where you get the one-line schedule and you get a really a board for it until about four weeks out. So uh, I wanted to have choices and then backup choices and backup choices because— Just in case a director was like, hey, I've decided I want to go— Well, and I don't know if you've gotten the chance to read all of the scripts. They're very dense. Uh, There's a lot of company moves, and we're shooting them. them. We we shoot them in eight days. So because of that, doing the math, I was like, okay, there's going to be multiple company moves per day. And so that means if you're in one location in the morning, the entire company, all the trucks, everything has to move to a different location— not easy. Nobody likes it. It adds time. It adds money. Yeah. So one and, thing and I was you didn't know to do, that when you were writing. I, 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 it's not that I didn't know. I have just disdain for it. Sure. Right. <laughs> it's like the art comes first. Right. No, I, I, I mean, I, I did not. And, and you know, I, I was encouraged to write the, the quote unquote, the best version of the script we could. And then it fell to really talented, really responsible people who I met. You were like in, exterior in middle earth. <laughs> no, kind of. Where's Avatar set? Navi. Yeah. Um, but people like Richard, people like our um, co-EP, Eric Crary. Who's um, amazing. Yeah. You know, even Zach's point, Zach helping out too, like crunching this stuff and helping, finding locations that are near each other in a way that I didn't even realize would be helpful. Right. And I, I had never worked with any of those guys. So I was super nervous. You know, they didn't show up till about I was there for about six weeks. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I think two weeks in from being there at eight weeks out when when Callie showed up, um, I had a big presentation for Andy just over digitally where I tried to – I'd had – you'd been great about giving me outlines, and I kind of knew what was coming, and I knew how big it was going to get. So I was trying to bang out as many options and kind of give him a sense of the whole season as soon as possible. Cool. Um, Go ahead. And in fact, like – it turns out, you know, with episode five, which we can get into in a second, but some of the houses were some of the, the trickiest things to, to secure. Okay. Because we knew, we knew we were going to need, you know, we knew we were going to need the slaughterhouse and we knew we were going to need some of the, the big locations, which there like were. The church and cemetery. Yeah, before. and the church and cemetery, things coming in later episodes. I had quickly, like, been, been able to, I don't want to give away too much. Well, no, but there, coming, there are examples but, of things yeah. where we were like, we need Felicity's secret apartment and it should right. be over a tamale shop. And so yeah. Richard knew. Told, I mean, you knew you identified this and yeah. suggested it, that we build the inside of it on our stage, which we did. Right. But then, and what the are we going to do exterior? Of that, for instance, so we looked at a bunch of different types of restaurants where we could build an exterior up to it, and then at some point we got fixated on the A-frame idea. And I actually ended up that was one of the few locations that Dennis didn't bring to me. I actually found that on Yelp. I huh. started looking on Yelp and just kind of going around. What were your search terms? <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for a Mexican restaurant. He was hungry. Yeah. Yeah. It all starts <laughs> and, uh, there. But and then uh, when we found it, you know, it was on a pretty busy street, so we knew there was going to be some logistical issues with it. And the backside, but the backside really lent, it, lent itself to building that staircase and a false door. So, so all, none it, of that but was I mean, there. He found an A-frame restaurant that had a back secret back. Right. It just existed, and it was just one of these little yeah. happy accidents. But, but I also want to talk about, just briefly, like the incredible additive 
nature of working with Richard where, so I think the, one of my favorite scenes that's aired so far is when we meet Mel Rodriguez's character, the mayor, Big Tony, and he's golfing in episode three. One of my and, favorite and, scenes as well. And he, and he drinks because of the golf. Yes. But also there's beer and other fun things and Kim Dickens. It's a great, it's a great scene. I'm just, it's important for me that golf is represented on television. I know. And, and <laughs> as everyone knows, I consulted with you heavily about that scene. <laughs> um, so... As scripted, I think he was initially on the top of a parking garage at the edge of town. We had this idea. Again, this is this is the kind of stuff that writers do that I think drive production people crazy, where I was like, we'll just find a building on where Albuquerque ends and the desert begins. Like, oh, there's yeah. just a lot. That's like that overhead shot of like Palm Springs and it's like the desert. So, so I was picturing in. that because flying in, you kind of think you, you see and me, that. Man, yeah. We're on the same page. So uh, unfortunately, that page had to be removed from the script <laughs> because that doesn't exist. So I w- but also, it was small minded thinking. I was like, he's on the roof of a building. Richard, driving around with Dennis and looking and looking, found this hill. Sure. Yeah, we actually found we, – we did find one where we could be on a roof on an Indian reservation that I was really, really psyched about. But ultimately, because of the way things happened, and we knew that the teaser with Lalo and the the, the car where they found the cocaine um, – we it was marijuana, Richard. Oh, right. The, the cocaine yeah, we didn't yeah, no, find. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, that that scene we found uh, close by, uh, what are they? Radio towers? Radio t- no, the towers, the uh, the electrical towers. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. And then within a pod, we were just driving by, and I was like, what about that hill right there mm-hmm. where that Doppler radar tower is that looks like a giant golf ball? Yeah. And, um, Luckily, it was also next to a composting or a trash facility. Yeah, it so smelled we great. Yeah. That. And yeah. it was also crazy windy. We scouted it, and it was like the perfect day. Yeah. And then I took was, the director back, and it was Steven, and it was like another perfect day. And then, then it was a windy day when we shot it. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, such as Albuquerque. But it looks great. Yeah, and and yeah. and there are other examples like that. I mean, and we can talk about this as we get more specifically into the episode, but what's insane about Richard's job is all the work that he did, it was just like, I can't imagine the level of preparation and detail. And it was so appreciated and such beautiful work. And then it never stops because then once we start shooting, he's scouting, he's prepping, they're dressing sets mm-hmm. for episodes in advance and finding new locations and moving locations. Yeah, I mean, and, that's probably the most chaotic part about a TV show like this because at any given moment, I'm prepping an episode, finding locations for an episode that were two episodes away. I'm prepping with a director who's come in who doesn't know the show. They've seen the pilot. They've talked to Andy, but they need to get into all the spaces. Sure. And we're opening two to three sets a day. Between the two of you, you know, because we we talked to Zach last week, the director of photography on the show, and I think that, you know, obviously I've, I've spoken with guys who do his job before, and it, it sounds like the way that um, someone in Andy's position or a director would talk to Zach is like, I kind of want it to be like Barton Fink, or I want it to feel a little bit Coen's Brothers-y, or I want it to feel a little bit like this, like a Catherine Bigelow running shot. And can you can you give me that what I'm in? I'm seeing in my head. How different is the vocabulary that you're dealing with in terms of like how how much of it is just practical? How much of it is like well, this is what we have, and so this is what I can make out of the space that we have found. Well, I think it's both. I mean, when you're building a set, it, the sky's the limit. Sure, you know. And so we built the whole police station, and I, I found that location early because I knew that was going to come up fast, and we were going to need oh, to. You should you should be specific because so, the the police station that we are inside of in episode four, where Chief Freitag gives her toast to Felicity, is is built, but it was built to model an external location yes. that Richard found for um, the press conference. Yes, that is which is three. one of the first things I wanted to lock into. And taking advantage of the aspect ratio, I was looking for sort of like things that were long and mm-hmm. flat. And um, and that also, on a bigger scale, that was like a mid-century building with a, with a really cool window detail that I knew we would translate to a, a stage set really well. So it's, it's a mixture of those things. I mean, the very first thing I do is I try and you go off the pages and you go off the conversations that we've had. And, you know, from there... I want to come back with make it better, mm-hmm. bigger ideas. Like one thing, I think on one of the very first weekends I went out, I scouted a bowling alley. This that is I what was I like, wanted to end up with. Yeah. I was like, Andy, you got to see this. You got to write something for was it. Was it just like, hey, I saw a it bowling alley? It was trapped in time. I mean, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Is that uh, where Peter Stormar ones up? Yes. So this is this that entire scene, one of my favorites from the season, came from Richard. Because Richard and Dennis were out. They were scouting this town in Belen, which is about 40 miles south of Albuquerque. Love going south. We spent a lot of time there. And we had scouted it a little bit for the pilot, just exteriors, didn't use it. And then on this sort of dusty main drag, there's a bowling alley that had been shut down in the 90s and maintained. Uh, Not maintained, but just Just untouched. Untouched. I mean, people's scores still on the wall. I mean, it it was... Any janitorial services being applied or... No. no. In fact, like bowling balls inside had, had 
actually split open from the heat. Um, the newer bowling balls aren't made like the older bowling balls. Usually apparently. that happens to me, but yeah. it's just because yeah. I'm throwing strikes. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> chasing so, 200. And, and that kind of thing was super exciting, though, to send it back to Andy and the writers and for them to get excited about what we were, what we were offering. And, and, and so this is actually why episode five is probably is a great one to have Richard here to talk about because I've said before on the podcast and in other interviews, like one of the opportunities or challenges, depending, of – going from pilot to series was opening up the world and showing the town and creating a place that mm-hmm. doesn't exist. Episode five, we identified early as kind of the procedurally episode. It's kind of a detective episode. It's Allegra and Singe going from point to point, trying to figure something out. And so if you are doing something where you're trying to communicate plot, you know, which is can be good and it, or it can feel a little bit rote, you want the locations to feel special. You want the places she goes and the people that she interacts with to be memorable for reasons other than the information, the expository information that they're delivering. And so I think it was early in the outline, I just felt like there was something missing. They went to the Chinese restaurant and the Chinese restaurant with the nacho bar was crucial. Um, Is that based on a... A real establishment? Um, I think, it, I mean, it, it, we wanted or, to... Or your ideal establishment. Well, one of the things we wanted to do with this episode was show the part of town that some that the richer people would have called the wrong part of... the packing town, the, yeah, wrong, yeah. You know, the, the, the wrong side of the tracks. Behind God's back is the phrase that, 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 that gets used in the show. And we wanted to try to also subtly, with whatever real estate we had, pay tribute to the immigrants that were making this town and were just adapting, right? And so Chinese restaurants are in every town in America and always have been, and they've adapted the cuisine to suit the place. So we wanted to show a Chinese restaurant and maybe they have a nacho bar also, Mm. which led to the most important detail for me, which is an egg roll being dipped in queso, which Zach Geller is still mad that I put in the show. Did you eat that? Personally? Have you ever eaten it? No. Okay. No. You know, I I do Pilates, man. (laughs) This this body's a temple. I would do it. I I just have never had the opportunity. Well... Come to Albuquerque. We will make that happen for you. But, <laughs> but, anywhere in Texas. But, but, but then we wanted also this feeling that there was a line that I think got cut, a singe line where he's like, this neighborhood is like an onion, where if you just started peeling it and unpeeling it, you would have signed more and more things. So I think the original idea was I came into the writer's room and was like, so they're in the Chinese restaurant, and then Allegra leads Singe down a back staircase, and there's a fat German in the basement. Um, ended up not fat. Mm. Ended up not German, although Swedish actor. But... And ended up not even being in the basement because there was this because that that was around the point Richard said, "Look at this beautiful set uh, location. Why don't location, you do something?" Yeah. And I was like, "Well, this could work." I wanted the idea of someone who had his finger on the pulse of the bad side of the town, like mm-hmm. who knew what was going on and like people were running in and out with running numbers and just that there was a, a robust criminal enterprise that was being disrupted by whatever else was disrupting the town or whatever else was disrupting uh, Packing Town, and also someone who Allegra had a had a history with. And also, there's a weird history of of German people, not weird, but there's an interesting history of German people in Texas. Mm. And um, yeah, and I was thinking also of like the big fat, Shiner, the big doctor, sh- yeah, Shiner, all the beer making. It's a very limited understanding like, of Texas. I'm thirsty for beer, but also yeah. I was also kind of tribute to the the doctor in the beginning of Paris, Texas. Um, sure. Speaking of Richards here, uh, I said to him. I wanted a logo that looked like the red underlined font of the opening of Paris, Texas, and Richard brought us our beautiful logo uh, from that. So all of all of it came from a desire. It was this. It's the the beautiful thing that can happen where we had a desire to tell a certain kind of story, and Richard gave us the canvas in which to tell it, and then uh, and then Zach knew how to light it and shoot it, and we end up with a totally beautiful, bizarre scene with Peter Stormare. <laughs> In it, which I still kind of can't believe. Um, I want to ask about Stormare, but I want to ask about Five a little bit more generally first. Because one of the things that I noticed was that this is the episode where it's really firmly established that this town is just slightly out of time. Like mm-hmm. it's like not out of time. Like like it's just it just feels like a little bit lost in 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 the chronology of the world where. Mm-hmm. You know, from the evening edition of newspapers yes. to iPod minis to just like a lot of. Oh, this, no. That is a... A shuffle. Was that a shuffle? No. What was it? it? Is a, oh, is it a Zune? Are we allowed to say it? Yeah. Uh, yes, there are only Zunes. We right. only use Zunes in this town. And it was the funniest thing to us, those of us in the writer's room. We'll see how it translates to America. <laughs> but boy, that made <laughs> yeah. us laugh. And Zune is probably trending as we speak. I hope so. What For what it's worth, to my good friends, and they're even better attorneys at the Microsoft Corporation, at no point do we say that I say that word. At no yeah. point do we um, showcase anything um, copyrighted. <laughs> I didn't even realize it. Oh, that could be that could be litigious. I don't know. I okay. mean, we're not allowed to use a product if you identify the product. 
I see. You know what I mean? Okay, so there is an MP3 player not off, made off by Apple. Yeah. Uh, discontinued. Anyway, was that something that you guys were consciously yes. going for? Yes. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, from the pilot, we knew the hotel, which is, you know, the old school money, uh, was built in the 30s. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, the town had had a few booms. It, it was the 30s. There was another boom maybe in the 50s and 60s where a lot of the residential that you see and also the police station was built. And then maybe kitchens were remodeled in the 80s and the 90s. You know, maybe there was a little bit of money and now it's kind of um, a little bit more stuck in time. That's so cool. There's not the resources, which is also why we go to multiple places that are, you know, dilapidated. Right. um, And and also it was a rule for like cars. We would have to – like there was – I'm thinking about a moment we were shooting something in nine and – we did one take of it, then we had to stop and have a Prius moved. Oh, yeah. An extra had put parked a car there. I'm just like, there are no hybrids in this town. Right. There are no and, – and, but it was important. It was a note, network note, note early, like, wait, when is this? This isn't a period piece. And it's pretty clear that it's not. There are MP3 players. There are smartphones. There are dr- many, many drones. Sure. But it was, it's a little bit wobbly and unstuck. There, there are newspapers and old media has an outsized influence. Was there, were there any rules to it? Aside from no yes. Priuses? <laughs> well, I had, I, I had tried to eliminate from the pilot. I tried to eliminate and trying to find color with character. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to eliminate in general the color blue to help tell the, the story of the heat and the hot. And that, so, and we were committed to the, you know, the red hallway and the, and the warmth. And Jake is, you know, bathed in these pastels mm-hmm. and his house is this yellow and his car is a butter yellow. Mm-hmm. And, and we were trying to bring in green and life only when we were in Jake's life and then maybe Raytech's life. Gotcha. But blue obviously snuck in and which worked out to our advantage because Floyd uh, Floyd drives the, the blue SUV. Mm-hmm. And, and actually in episode five, we go to this uh, motel that is uh, – the Americana type motel of red, white, and blue, mm. and it became it became sort of its own symbol in a way. And I know the Risa, the costume designer, she she worked with color. We all we worked really well together and tried to to always know what what actors we were putting in which space uh, and pick the costumes mm-hmm. accordingly. But you were, you would spell out a lot of the colors in in the script even. And how, <laughs> did you learn about that from from Richard too? Um, well. Yes. I mean, I learned a ton. I learned the phrase color story, which I love. But but for real, I mean, there was something, there was a focus and a sharpness to Richard's point of view about it that really helped sort of just whip us into shape quite mm-hmm. literally with episode two to um, what you can do by filling the frame with something and then also when you hold back, right? Sure. So, so making Jake's home feel lush and separate from the rest of the world and what that said about and, both where he was and where everyone else was. And that location had a lot of um, tricky... <laughs> prerequisites because we weren't allowed to do that much to it. Gotcha. Um, and, it's a thriving Airbnb business yeah. if anyone would like to stay in Jake Spivey's house. Um, tell me about Stormer. How, how does he show up on on the set of Briar Patch? Uh, I actually flew into Albuquerque with him from LA. Did he know who you were? No. And I was a few rows back. Uh, so I, I actually didn't speak to him because also I wanted to give him a space. But also I was really just flabbergasted that the legendary Peter Stormer was living up to the legend by wearing uh, spray-painted gold high tops. Mm and carrying a tiny uh, schoolgirl-sized Hello Kitty backpack, uh, which he told me about in great detail. Uh, he used to do commercials in Japan in the 80s, and he feels responsible for bringing Hello Kitty to America. Did he get points on that package? Uh, unclear. Okay. Unclear. Uh, in between takes on the bowling alley, he did tell me many stories about working with Ingmar. Bergman. I hope so. Mm-hmm. Not clear, actually. <laughs> um, he is a total character, you know, and this was... He likes to work, and he likes to do fun, weird, interesting things. No take was the same. I think Rosario is was Rosario and Eddie were definitely up to it. There was like riding a bucking bronco doing a scene with him because you know we'd given him. This was never a problem for me. It's a lot of words, uh, and he was just finding new pathways into each and every one of them every time, which was a blast. And also, it was just kind of fun because this guy, this is a guy who is legendary and in many people's favorite movies. And so everyone was excited to sure. work with him. I mean, that, that, was, that was one of the fun things about getting these incredible legends like him and Ed Asner to be on, or Alan Cumming to be on the show. Everyone stepped up. The actors would, like, step up their game. They wanted to do scenes with him. Everyone was pitching more scenes for Gunter to come back. So, it's like, Jay Ferguson wanted to do a scene with him right. um, to get him back. So he was great. That was just one day of work in a bowling, you know, in a disused bowling alley. Is that alley why he only brought that small amount of luggage? I think so. He's a, he's a very soulful guy. When... Casting is so fluid like this, and like over the course of the season, they're still they're still filling roles, and so you are essentially f- coloring in the characters and the script with like visions in your head. Do, does it ever 
not match or you were like, oh, I didn't really imagine Gunter as this guy, but like, let's work with it. I think, I think we had a lot of meetings and we were trying to always be on the same page. Um, one, I think Colder's house was probably one of the, the trickier ones to crack because yeah. we lost it. Mm. We lost that location like right at the last second. And uh, Stephen had already boarded it all. We'd, we'd already started building scenery for the house. And then the, um, the homeowner sort of held us ransom. So we, we moved on. So we had a, sort of a last minute scramble and then the house that was ultimately was originally going to be Singe's grandma's house where Singe lives became Colder's house because we all loved that house and we went back uh, I think on a weekend and and re-looked at it and we're like will this work and that was as as I feel like y'all were really getting Lucretia all like really mm-hmm. uh, put together and all of a sudden it was like yeah this house is going to be great this, which yeah, we had it ended to up fitting. it didn't have a yard um, so we had to sod some of the front and it didn't have um, it didn't have a couple of other elements, but I think we made some mi- you made some minor tweaks to to make that work. Yeah, and then yeah. you know then also Richard just has to roll with things like oh Singe's, Singe's grandmother's house is full of antique toys. Right. Yeah, that was fun. What yeah. else you got for for this episode? Well, the, it it was a it was one of the hardest ones to crack because we're trying to do something that in retrospect was maybe even too challenging, which is to try to ha- show a like we're doing an investigation but doing it wrong. It's tough. I mean, I've said this from the beginning. One of the things that I, I found, especially in retrospect, to be the most challenging was having a dynamic lead character who is making mistakes, you know, and because she's so heated. And there's a great piece of music that Giancarlo created that we used a lot in this episode, the sort of pulsing music that we started calling Seeing Red because that's when she gets really worked up. And why is she pushing so hard? Why, what is she not seeing? Um, because she's she's rushing to assumptions because she's trying to fill the void inside of her. So the A to B to C to D, all to, to solve a story that she believes in her head that her sister had gone bad or her sister had discovered drug smuggling or all these sort of very obvious things dovetailed with my desire to tell a story that was near the border that wasn't what you think it is. Right. And hopefully, you know, more of that will be re- – more of that gets revealed, obviously, next week. This is kind of a cliffhanger ending. Yeah, it is. But, but the goal was for her to totally screw up, reach a point where Freddie Laffer gets badgered into a heart attack, which is taken from the book – have some angry, inappropriate, toy-based sex with Singe, and then Felicity rem- Then Felicity comes back. Yeah. We hear Felicity's voice again. She hears what Singe had been trying to tell her about slowing down, being more like her sister, and she remembers she missed something, which was that when she was chasing the kids at the burger place, and for those people who are listening to the great Burgers and Burgers, uh, the great Zootown podcast. Burgers you know, and Burgers, burgers is and also burgers. a great podcast. That's a, that would be Brian Brown's <laughs> favorite podcast. That, <laughs> that plays a big role in the uh, Zootown podcast. That, you know, th- we, we had created this character who's like a little punk yeah. who's drawing up all the attention and sucking up all the very oxygen. River's Edge. He's very River Phoenix. That yeah. Beautiful young actor named Ben. Um, anyway, that she missed something, which was the young woman who was there, who was really more like her, who was secretly in charge. Mm. And so she goes back and she follows where she's going and it leads her into further mystery. But all that with all the movement, you know, it, it was interesting to try to put it together. It, it gave us a lot of opportunity for fun, great, exciting locations, back mm-hmm. to the slaughterhouse in the daytime, Chinese rest, Chow's Chow Down, Chinese restaurant, um, uh, the bowling alley. It also meant that we ended up cutting a lot from this episode, unfortunately. Yeah. Like there was a lot of exposition and backstory and walk and talks. And there was a lot of stuff about Singe's background that I, I wish we could have kept in um like that his name is august damien singe his grandmother was june july singe but also just great stuff that i you know was important to me to have in the show i wish we could have done it um stuff that came was very room came from the room mm-hmm. about being um the sort of inner familial strife like he felt isolated from his family too because he was his parents were stressed education and he went to law school and that kept him at a distance from some of his own family and his own cousins and so it was kind of bringing them together in a different way about their own isolation from their families. Stuff about when Allegra moved to the town. But anyway, I'm telling you now on a podcast. <laughs> I'm sure people are finding it super compelling. Um, yeah, it was a fun one. Also the first of two episodes directed by uh, a great English gentleman named Colin Buxy. Oh, yeah. Who won an Emmy for uh, Fargo season one. And uh, is a delightful hang. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish we could Did have- Did he do two in a row? He did. Yeah. Uh, this was this the, the five and six were the were the the, the nightmare block. Like they're extremely ambitious uh, episodes, as you'll see when you get to six. And you know there was a lot of concern whether we could pull them off budgetarily, in addition to everything else. And so he was a pretty steady and uh, 
said he handed a very quick hand. <laughs> That's lunch. <laughs> well, I think you guys did pull them off. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for joining us ah, on the thank watch. Thank you, guys. This has been fun. Can I say one thing also about Richard while he's here, Chris, on the podcast? Richard was like Allegra Dill. Richard checked into the hotel in Albuquerque. Well, that is true. And he, and he never left. And he never left. I think he, I by choice, it. stayed in the beautiful Hotel Chaco for how many months total? Six months? I think it was a little more than that, yeah. More than six months. Here's the thing about Richard. Everyone loves him, and rightfully so. Your humble narrator also stayed in this hotel for large swaths of time. <laughs> Literally haunted it like a ghost. Could have been stayed there. It was a period where I was staying there for three weeks. I would walk in and say, good morning. Nothing. No, nothing from Richard? Or nothing, nothing from, from anyone. Okay. No, yeah, I got Then hugs. one time I was talking to someone, and they were like, wait, are you, do you know Richard? Do you know Richard Bloom? Long pause. We love Richard. For, oh, this is somebody working at the hotel. The hotel and Richard had this beautiful relationship. This is true. But it is because I had ruptured my Achilles. And then when I first showed up at the hotel, I was barely walking. Oh, no. And they really watched me. But they Richard, they loved you from the pilot. You That's were true. there for the pilot. They just love you. <laughs> they, they, yeah, I love this. I like Chaco. Yeah, shout out to my, my people. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for joining uh, us. Yeah, it's it's been friend. great. Thanks, guys.